Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 168th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Aaron Botsford. Aaron is the founder of Botsford Financial Group, a hybrid RA with the LPL platform that oversees nearly $1 billion in assets under management with offices in Dallas and Atlanta. What's unique about Aaron, though, is the way that Aaron built and evolved her firm over the years, from being entirely centered around herself as the lead advisor, to the end where even still having her name on the door of the firm, Botsford Financial Group, presented no impediment at all to her selling the firm and transitioning the clients. Because in the end, it's far more about the mentality of the founder to build the business beyond themselves than how they happen to name the firm. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Erin built her advisory firm over the past 30 years, the transformation she went through after spending the first 10 years of her career working hard to grow to $300,000 in gross revenue, and then after a breakthrough coaching session made a deliberate shift to transition herself from lead advisor of the firm to being Rainmaker and CEO instead, and nearly 10x'd the growth of the firm in barely three years later. How Erin developed herself into a lead Rainmaker role for the firm after self-admittedly not being a natural business developer. And the way that Aaron balanced letting go of being the lead in client relationships, but still maintaining vigilant oversight of the firm and the, that the work was being done properly for clients. We also talk about how Aaron actually shifted control of client relationships and execution of the firm, the three-meeting approach she used to transition clients to next-generation advisors who would manage the relationship in the future, the after-action meetings that Aaron conducted with her advisors after the client meetings to instill lessons about how to man- better manage those relationships, and the steps that she took to initially institutionalize all the firm's processes and procedures as someone who isn't naturally inclined towards writing out her own processes and procedures. And be certain to listen to the end, where Erin shares why she ultimately decided to sell her advisory firm, the reason she felt drawn back to the advisor industry to teach other advisors how she built her firm by tying it to one of her charitable passions, and the way that Erin came to embrace the radical authenticity approach that she now takes in everything she does after a a breakthrough meeting early with a client whose child was suffering through a terrible accident similar to something that Erin herself went through as a teenager. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Aaron Botsford. Welcome, Aaron Botsford, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited about today's discussion and and this journey through the business that you've been on that I've seen a number of advisors do over the years of, of building a successful business unto itself. I know you, you've done this for 30 odd years, were uh, Barron's one top 100 and build a very successful independent firm. And then ultimately decide to make this transition to say, well, I'm actually not sure I want to really keep doing the advising firm stuff anymore, but I really like teaching other advisors about what I've done and, and make this transition from being primarily focused in an advisory firm to primarily focused in teaching, training, just sharing what you've done with others. And so I, I know you've kind of recently made this transition or are going through this shift yourself and just kind of excited to talk about both the the journey of building the business and, and I guess to me what is a, a real challenge for a lot of us in the advisor world of trying to 
figure out how, how you decide what's next when you want to do something that's next. And, and often just our lives are so tied up in our advisory businesses that are built around us. It's a, it's a hard transition. It wasn't as hard for me as you might think. What ended up happening, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit more detail about my journey, but I was lucky enough. I'd been in business for about 10 years and I was struggling. And so I went to and got some business coaching and it was a three-year program. And on the third year, excuse me, thir- third year, 12th session, I, I happened to be paired with a guy. We were supposed to compare results. And at the time I had been, I started off with this business coaching. I'd been doing like 300,000 in production. And now I was really happy because I was on target to do like 400, 450. And I was just happy, you know, super happy with my progress. And so I was paired with him and, and I decided to go first. And I said, Hey, I'm Aaron Botsford. And, you know, three years ago I was doing 300 and now I'm on the target to do 400, 450. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, woohoo, look at me. And so then it was his turn. He said, Hey, I'm Paul. Three years ago, I was doing 300,000 as well. Of course, I'm thinking, well, look at that. You know, we're just alike. And then he said, this year I'm on target to do 3 million in production. And he said, I don't meet with individual clients anymore. I've built a whole team around me. And so I just prospect for new business and, and, you know, my team takes care of them. And then he goes to add insult to injury. He said, yeah. And my wife, she just won the Bill Phillips body for life contest. So I'm also in the process, I'm building a gym. So next year I'll own a gym and a financial services business. And I was like, what? I was like, (laughs) You went from. <laughs> I'm like, I, I was feeling pretty good about this coaching thing until about eight seconds ago. <laughs> I, mean, I was just like, it was crazy. I felt like that ALS bucket moment, that challenge. I mean, somebody just dumped this huge bucket of ice water over. I, and I was like, did I miss a coaching session? I mean, I, I just couldn't believe it. And and so, of course, the bell rings. It's time to go back to my seat. And I'm standing there in just complete disbelief. And finally, I'm like, uh, 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 Paul, uh, pa- Paul, could I buy a few hours of your time? And you know, he graciously said, hey, yeah, in fact, why don't, you, why don't you come spend the whole day with me and my team? So as quickly as I could get back to Dallas, I grabbed my husband. And, and you know, some of the advisors will be curious. to them. My reason for grabbing my husband to go with me was I was sure that this guy was going to tell me that in order to do that kind of production, I was going to have to sell my firstborn, divorce my husband. I mean, it was just going to be, I, I wanted my husband to, you know, whatever we have to do, dear, you have to you know, have a buy-in. And so, Anyway, I spent one day with this guy and three years later, I did 3 million and then 4 million and then 5 million and my business just kept growing. So anyway, it got to a point and, and literally when, after I got back from Paul's office, I had one assistant and a part-time receptionist person. And I remember saying to my assistant, she was 20 years old. I'd gotten her out of college and I said, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to go out and bring in new business and you're going to do everything else. And she's like, okay. And so literally that's what happened. And I, you know, I ended up getting, you know, another person, another person. By the time I sold the company, I had an office in Dallas. I had an office in Atlanta. I had 18 employee, full-time employees. The truth was I, you know, by 2015, I had written a book. This book is called Seven Figure Firm, How to Build a Financial Services Business That Grows Itself. And, and I wanted to make sure I was telling the truth. Like, you can have a business that grows without your day-to-day involvement. So I took six months off. And so I literally, I went to Asia for a whole month. I went to India for a month. I went to Africa for a month. And then I took the whole summer off. And I just wanted to see, you know, how did my team do? And 2015, we had a 
record year. And so it was really fun to be able to congratulate my team. You know, they really had done this. It also gave me the incentive, or let's call it the permission to publish this book, because I felt like, okay, this really did work and all of that. So I, I started, as I said, I didn't, I, I worked myself out of a job. And so I started getting asked to give industry speeches. And so I remember it was 2016, I think, I was, I was asked to give eight speeches for the same big company. And right before I went on stage, like the day before, I put up a PowerPoint, a slide, and it said, come spend the day with me and my team. And after my first speech, I had 18 advisors sign up and I was charging them like $3,000 to come and spend the day with my team. And so all of a sudden I went, you know, I'm a 10 quick start. Okay. So I do things maybe not quite, I'm a ready fire aim person. So I come back to my team. I'm like, oh my gosh, we have 18 people coming. We got to come up with an agenda or curriculum. So so as so as a ten quick start out of curiosity, did did they even know that you had made the offer to anyone to come to the firm before they found out that eighteen no, of were coming? Not. Of course not. I mean, I'm just that spontaneous and everything. And so, and I will segue and say, um, in the meantime, in way back when 2009, my husband and I had been on safari, and we were introduced to this orphanage. And since then, we we have done we have supported the orphanage a lot. And so when I did this spend the day, we did, took 100% of the proceeds from that and we used that to you know, help fund this orphanage. And so what was interesting was I noticed, Michael, that these advisors that were coming and spending the day, they all had very similar challenges in their business. And so one of the things I did was I allowed them, they were spending you know, $3,000. So after the spend the day, I also allowed them two hours with any member of my team, but they had to submit their questions in advance. Because I thought if I knew what their questions were, I could, you know what, I could create content out of that. Anyway, so in the meantime, I happened to take an online course on something completely random, nothing to do with the financial industry. But I found out that guy that I took the course from, he made $50 million in his online course. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, so I thought, well, maybe I could create an online course. And again, you know, I didn't know how to do it and random things happened. And here we go. Three years later, I have an online course. And so I just, the reason I was able to do this is my business did not require me to show up and it grew and grew and grew. And it was really fun because I will say this, I got as much enjoyment out of my, my staff getting the wins you know, I, I don't always have to be the one with the win. I liked just having them get the win, the new client, the new prospect, the new sale, whatever it was. I, I got a lot of joy out of that. So sometimes me showing up, it's like, here, I've got this. I'll take over. Well, that denied them the win, you know? So bottom line is, so I sold the company. I finished this online course. And the really cool thing about it was when Bob and I, we got a nice big check when, when I sold the company. And we were able to look at each other and say, you know what? We have enough. We're done. And so 50% of everything we do going forward is to feed, you know, orphans in, in Africa. There's just in the country of Zambia alone, you know, there's 1.7 million orphans. They got hit really bad with, with AIDS, the AIDS virus. And so we, we take care of 500 children 
And uh, I'd like to take care of 5,000. I don't know. But for right now, that's what we can commit to. If, for me, I've, I'm just having the time of my life because I'm pouring into advisors. And I, I this course takes five and a half months, like an hour to two, hour, one hour to two hours a week for five and a half months. And I talk to them once a month. And I mean, the light bulbs are going on. It's just, so I'm having just a great time just, you know, pouring into advisors and in, in doing so and getting them successful feeding kids. So it's kind of a win-win. So take me back a moment to this, this seminal moment with Paul. You've, you've been going through three years of coaching after having already been doing this almost a decade at $300,000 in revenue, coaching got you to 400. Paul sits down and says, well, I went from 300 to 3 million. And you said, you know, you, you went out and you met with Paul and three years later, you were there as well. So, so talk to us more about what changed, like what was the business in the first 10 years, right? The good getting from zero to 300 or zero to 400. And then what changed that suddenly the, the, you know, hockey stick of growth picked up over the subsequent three years? So first of all, in the first 10 years, I started off as a stockbroker in Panama City, Florida. Um, My husband was a fighter pilot. I was young, 28 years old. I did not know one individual in that town. And, you know, fighter pilots, military people don't make any money. So just just the initial struggle of making it in the business, you know, was, was tough. But then he got out of the military and he decided to fly um, for American Airlines. And so we moved then. Here I'd been in the business like three years and we moved to Dallas, Texas. So I started over again in a place where I did not know one person. You know, so you, as you can imagine, let's let's call those first six to seven years building blocks, but they weren't really building anything. I mean, it was just, I, I built something and then I walked away from it because I had to move with my husband, you know. I was frustrated and I decided to... I had this branch manager that said, you know, why don't you go get some business coaching? So I got some business coaching and, and so then I, then I met Paul and here's the difference. The day I met Paul, there was a couple of things that he did for me, spending that day did for me. One was, and we can talk about this later, but I had a very rough childhood and background. Okay. It's its its own story. Okay. But to say that I had no self-esteem would be a huge understatement. I, I just had, I had never, I'd never even considered the thought that maybe I could be successful. And it was almost like seeing Paul, I remember, I remember thinking, you know, he's, he doesn't look any smarter than me and you know, better looking than me. You know I mean? It's like, how can he do this? And so basically spending that time with Paul, it was almost like without even saying anything, it's like he waved this magic wand and granted me permission to be successful. And, and and the other thing he taught me was it was we spent the better part of the day talking about the mindset of achievement. I mean, he didn't have a to-do list, do this, do that, next do this, next do that. What he made me realize is he made me think out to the future. And he said, Aaron, what do you want your life to be like? And I actually, when I left him, I wrote a sentence down. And the sentence was, I wanted my business to be the benefactor that allowed me to have a great life. Because up until that point, my business was my life and a lot to the exclusion of everything else, you know? And so what he made me realize that I didn't have a business, that every client that walked in the door expected to meet with me and I expected to meet with them. 
I didn't know any different. I mean, think about it. I was a stockbroker. I was hired to be a salesperson. You know, they didn't want me to think like a business owner. They just wanted me to sell stuff to put you know money on their bottom line. And so the idea of, okay, now I'm going to go independent, which has its own set of challenges, right? You have to actually pay rent and buy computers and, you know, all of that stuff and hire employees and pay benefits. And, and so when I came back and I decided, okay, I'm going to really think of this as a business. And the example I give to my students, and this was, I thought, a great analogy that Paul and I discussed is that let's say I didn't go into the financial services business. Let's say instead I decided to invest in McDonald's franchises in my town. So I bought one on the north side and I bought one on the south side and I bought one on the east side. I'd, and I bought one on the west side of four different McDonald's franchises. And the question was, in which McDonald's franchise would you be in the back flipping burgers? And the answer was none of them, right? The owner of the company doesn't do the work of the business, right? They don't, the owner of the McDonald's doesn't flip the burgers. They hire people to do the work of the business. And I really had never thought of that before. I thought I was the one supposed to be doing this work of the business, right? So, so, so I, did, I did go back and like I said, I had one employee and a part-time and I decided, he said, what you have to do, because he told me, he goes, I built a team around me. My team meets with and services all of our clients I just bring in new prospects. I sell the philosophy of our firm and I say, nobody gets me. Okay. You know, you're buying the philosophy of firm. You're going to meet with, we have a whole team. We have people that will handle your long-term care insurance and your regular insurance and your investments. And so you're going to, you have to buy into working with our team. So that's exactly what I did. Now my team consulted, consisted of one and a half people when I started, but I just did whatever he told me to do. I just went back and I did it. And it's interesting, and that's why I believe so much in this concept of modeling. Well, I think coaching has its places. Heck, I was in business coaching for 15 years, but the problem I have with coaching is every quarter when I would go, I would I would sit there with a blank piece of paper. I had to make it, you know, our coach would ask us a question. I had to make it all up myself. And what a colossal waste of time. Why not just copy somebody? <laughs> put your letter, put your letterhead on it and just copy what works, you know, instead of I mean, I spent a ridiculous amount of time trying. Does this work? When it came to prospecting, how do you get new prospects? Do I do seminars? Do I do this? Do I, do? I tried everything. And why should everybody have to go through that learning curve is my, my question. And I don't think they have to. I love that discussion of the mindset shift of, you know, you, Imagine you own four McDonald's and you're and you're building your franchises, right? And just the idea of like, so which one are you going to be situated at flipping burgers? Just sort of accentuates the point of you know, at the end of the day, are you trying to be a burger flipper who who creates your own job by owning a McDonald's franchise, or are you trying to be a business owner that owns McDonald's franchises? And one of the things you can do is hire the people who prepare the burgers. And just that fundamental mindset shift, it, it kind of reminds me of you know, Michael Gerber's E-Myth discussion, which was similar. I think that was a pie maker. Yeah. Well, in fact, that was one of the things Paul recommended that I read that book. And literally, I, I got it at the airport. I read it cover to cover, highlighted, underlined. It, it became my business Bible. And I, have, I can't tell you how many of those books I've given away to other, other advisors or at least recommended that they, that they read it. I, I also got to share the stage with Michael Gerber one time, which was really fun. 
similarly or and i i had i had read e-myth i guess just v- like very early on in my advisory career as well and and found it similarly kind of transformative of just the mindset of how you're thinking about the business and and this idea you know at the end of the day are you trying to be a financial advisor or do you want to be an advisory firm business owner because there's a difference between the two so were there were there challenges for you in making this mindset shift or is it just this like Paul said it and it clicked and you were all in and that was that. That was it. I mean, it was kind of like permission granted, you know, go do it. And, and the, the you know, I will say this, people have asked me because I, I ended up hiring like two or three more people. I decided to go all in, right? Because I was either going to do it and get the same results as him or I wasn't. I just didn't want to approach it half-assed because then I'd always wonder, well, if I'd have just done this or I'd just done that, maybe, maybe could I have gotten the same results? So it was just a decision. And, and the good news is, as I said, I had my husband with me and we looked at each other like, he's like, honey, you could do this. And I'm like, really? You know? And so I was lucky I had the support. So he's never like, hey, why are you hiring another person? And that's coming out of our pocket. I had none of that to deal with. Yeah, it was. And, and you know, what was interesting was I would look around the office where there was other financial advisors that worked in the same office suite as I did and stuff. And I just found it interesting that they would spend all of their time. Do you remember the, the old days where we had quotrons and things like that? They'd spend all of their time researching and studying the market and all that stuff. And then they wonder why their production numbers were so low. And until I met Paul, I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing. I thought I was supposed to be really knowledgeable about you know, I had to know if somebody asked me a question about this, that, or the other thing, I, I better know. Well, I figured out that it would be, it was smarter to hire somebody and pay them $50,000 to know that stuff when I could go out and be making, you know, a whole lot more money. So, but I did think it was interesting. I started observing other people in my office and I, I thought it was interesting, the stories they told themselves, because the hardest thing in the world to do in our business is go out and prospect and bring, and, and, and risk that rejection that you, you know, you, you set yourself up for rejection. And so we tell ourselves all kinds of stories to make sure that, you know, our, our excuses for not being out there and subjecting ourselves to that possible rejection. So I had to have a really, I had to get a really thick skin. Well, and I'm, I'm struck by that point in particular, you know, as, as you framed it, like the whole secret for, for Paul, the big transition for you was, hire a team that can handle all the clients so you can just go out there and focus on all the business development and and grow the heck out of the business and it it sort of implicitly presumes that you actually have some natural skill set or ability or can learn to be good at the business development and want to spend all your time doing that well i can tell you you know i remember thinking i don't know why but i thought i always thought that i would only have to prospect for 7 years and I have no idea where I came up with that number. And I remember in seven years and one day, I'm like, oh, I still have to do this. I still have to do it. And I can honestly tell you, it was not a strength of mine. I mean, it was not something I, you know, super enjoyed or whatever. I don't know if it was a natural skill, but it just had to get done. And so, and, and what's interesting is people have, I've heard advisors say, well, you know, I don't think I'm a people person or I'm this, or they, they, have, they say, could I hire somebody to do that? And I don't know, but my personal experience tells me the hardest part of the business is prospecting. So, it, so why would somebody work for you 
I mean, if they can, if they're good at prospecting, why don't they prospect for their own business? Why would they feed your business? And so, you know, I think that most people in our business are responsible for business development. I mean, I guess there's some odd cases where they can hire a marketing team or other things, but for the most part, I think the owner of the business in our industry is typically responsible for business development. Well, and and I, in general, in most businesses, even across a lot of industries, the a high your your high producing salespeople that generate business are often the most well paid people in the entire business. Often very incentive based, but if they really do a good job doing business development and bringing in new clients, new customers, new sales, what whatever industry it is. You know the people who can make the revenue come in are are often some of the highest paid people in the organization because it's just it's hard to do. You know, not that advising and the rest of what we do is isn't challenging as well, but at the end of the day, you know, you you can be the most brilliant, hardworking financial advisor if there aren't any clients to pay you for your time. You still won't have a business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? But what's interesting, Michael, is that. I, I I remember getting really mad because I'm like, nobody told me this. Nobody told me that my job was going to be going out there and, and doing this. I, I mean, I really thought I was going to get to be a financial advisor. I didn't know that I was going to be a, a marketing machine, you know? And I don't know if it would have changed my decision, but I did. I really didn't know that. So yeah, it's, anyway. Well, and, and to me, just it's, it's that crossroads that that you get to, that, that you literally got to that so many of us get to that you know initially just you have a lot of time and not a lot of clients so we we just go out there we try to get anybody we can in the door get any clients get any revenue just try to get going but at some point after a couple of years you start approaching capacity where you're using up all your time and there's no more time and and you start hitting this wall and to me that that's the wall where some people go out for coaching right, and say Okay, my my I feel like my growth is slowing down. I'm not quite sure what's wrong. We're trying to figure out what's wrong. For some people, the the growth just flatlines entirely, and and they may make that a conscious decision. Like you know what, the money I take out of the uh, the business at this point, it works for me. It solves my goals. It solves my family goals. I'm good with you know my 50 great clients or 100 clients and this much in revenue and this much in net income, but. If you want to keep growing further, if you want to move beyond that, almost by definition, the the business has to grow beyond you and your individual ability to serve however many clients you can serve with the time you've got. And if you're going to make that transition, suddenly a whole bunch of questions come up where if you're going to say, okay, I'm going to have a bigger business with more people to ask the question like, well, what are you going to do in that business at that point, right? Like if you start a restaurant, Often you're the one, you're the, you know, the chef and the table setter and the chief bottle washer because you wear every hat. If you're going to go buy a whole bunch of McDonald's franchises, you're not usually trying to figure out which job you're going to do behind the counter. You're focused on building the franchises and growing more of them. And that same kind of shift, I think, kicks in for us as advisors once we hit that capacity crossroads. The challenge, though, is if you spent the past three or five or seven or 10 years being the advisor and having all the relationships with the clients shifting to say maybe that's not going to be my identity in the business anymore is a huge challenge unto itself 
Right. Well, I think, and the other thing too, I guess the other gift that Paul gave me was this vision for the future. And what, you know, it's like, okay, what do you want at the end of the rainbow? And I wanted that, you know, because my dad died when I was little and left my mom destitute. And because I had all these, I'm very risk averse, right? And I'm, I'm, I probably did as much planning for Aaron Bosford for me as I did for any client. I'm, I'm, I very much, you know, ate my own cooking kind of thing. And so I wanted to make sure that someday when I wanted to, I could extract as much value from the business as possible. And so when you start, you know, when you make that goal, you know, you have to realize that, you know, a business has less value to a potential buyer if every customer is dependent on or used to working with the financial advisor. And case in point, um, the day that I sold my company, the buyer of my company bought another woman's business. And she had about the same AUM, the same revenue as me. But the problem for her is that all of her clients were very much used to working with her. And the bigger problem for her was she'd had a massive stroke. So as a result, you know, she was able to sell her business, but she got about 25 cents on the dollar compared to what I got. So think about that. My worry, I, I actually did extract out or I, I expounded out in my, my worldview was, okay, what if that, ha- what if I had a massive heart attack? What if I had got cancer? What if I had a stroke like her? I mean, I was thinking about that at least 10 or 15 years before I ever even conceived of selling the company. So I wanted all of my contingencies dealt with because in my case, I had one son and um, I really, my dream would that he would join me in the business and then take over the business. That Because my God, I, we, we were, you know, was making a lot of money and I wanted that for him too. And but he had, you know, when time came, he had absolutely no interest in our business whatsoever. So if I would, if I w- would not have been really dutifully planning, I would have made an assumption, hey, I don't have to be prepared for an outside, in, you know, a buyer because my kid's going to take over. And so we'll just transition, you know, the clients from me to my son. Well, I didn't think that way. I, I planned for every contingency, not knowing which one was going to work out. Thank God I didn't have a stroke. You know, thank thank God I was able to sell on my own terms. I had three I had three complete offers that year, and I got to pick which one I wanted. And it's only because <laughs> there was no risk to the business. In fact, I will tell you, in all honesty, less than two weeks ago, somebody I was talking to an old friend of mine in the industry, and it's been two and a half years since I sold my company. And he goes, "So how are they doing? Like, did most of the clients stay with them?" And I started laughing. I go, "The clients don't even know I'm gone." We never made an announcement. Dun dun da da. Aaron Bosser just sold the company. They have no idea that I'm gone because none of them were used to meeting with me. So I go, nope. They're all in the books. And these guys goes, that's unbelievable. So, and I guess someday it makes it, it makes an interesting point though for a lot of us that worry about well, you know, if I if I sell the business, will the clients stick around to say, well. What would it what would it look like if you so transitioned your role in the business that if it got sold, the clients wouldn't even notice the difference because you weren't that involved in the first place anymore? And you know what? And I want to say, add one more point, if you don't mind. I did this as this was as much about my clients as it was about me. Okay, think about. I mean, if I died, Bob and I travel all the time. We ski six weeks a year. We you know we travel a ton. 
And what if my clients found out that I had been killed in an airplane crash? What does that do for them? You know, when I brought them in, I wanted to promise them that they could stay with my firm for the rest of their lives and all of their children and their grandchildren. Everybody would be taken care of. So to me, having this having this plan, this succession plan that didn't involve me showing up all the time was actually in the best interest of my clients, you know? And so, yeah, it was good for me, but I wanted that longevity for my staff. I want, I, I want my, I mean, none of my staff, I mean, they're, they're all there. They're all integral to the business. And, and so it was good for me. It was good for the clients. And it was good for my team who didn't have to go look for another job because, you know, because I sold the company. So I think there's a feeling for at least some advisors of, but when everybody else is doing all the client stuff, like what, Aaron, what do you do exactly at the, well, not necessarily at this point, cause you've sold, but like in the, in the, in the final years, like what, what is your role in the business at that point? What do you do from day to day when we're celebrating like, oh, I'm, I'm, I, the clients so at least see me so little, they basically didn't even notice that we sold the firm. I did a lot. I did a lot, but it was all behind the scenes. So, you know, you talked about a little bit about, you know, what are the disciplines and everything. So, you know, even though I, my role was not to meet with, you know, every single quarter or meet with clients, I still was the primary hunter. Okay. So I was out doing breakfast, lunch, cocktails, dinner. I was still prospecting for new business. That's one thing. The second thing is it was my business and I never took my eye off the ball. So how do I say that? Well, Every Sunday night, I had a, a, a Sunday night discipline that every Sunday night from six o'clock at night till 10, 1030, I sat there and I required all my advisors, every single meeting, every single call, every single appointment was memorialized. So afterwards, they, they had to do a complete download. And so I could look on the calendar on Sunday night, I would look on the calendar, I'd see every call or appointment that had taken place in the business and if I double clicked, there had better be a meeting download. You know, I wanted to read through it. They had to tell me, let's say, because I had a big contingency. I had a lot of clients for one particular company, like 280 senior level executives from one company. Now imagine if one or two of them got sideways with my firm. I mean, things could have gone, you know, spiraled downhill really fast. So I used to think of myself, you know, I used to think of myself as a, a firefighter in Southern California, and I was walking around, and my hose was always dripping to put out little potential fires. So I needed for my people, let's say they went into a meeting and they did a proposal for X, Y, and Z, and the client balked at it, and they goes, no, I'm not going to do that. In fact, my friend Joe, he said you did this, and he said, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I wanted to make sure that my staff had to say to me, Hey, you might want to just put a call into Tony, you know, Tony Smith, because, you know, so I was always prepared to put out any potential fires that happen. And, and truthfully, it got to be having 280 people from the same firm. I decided it just, it was too risky. Right. And so I, I said, you know, it's been a good run, but I'm going to really focus on, you know, other, other people. Right. It was because I didn't want that potential that, you know, all, you know, especially in the day of social media, what if somebody posted, did you hear Aaron Bosford got arrested on, you know, embezzling money, you know, I'd be out of business. Right. So, so that was a, a risk that I had, but, but yeah, so Sunday nights, what I did was I reviewed, if I didn't know what had happened in the meetings, I reviewed every meeting, the download, the notes, and then I prepared exactly, 
what I wanted the staff to do, what I wanted to get accomplished the next week. So Monday morning at eight o'clock from eight to 10, you know, we met with, I met with my staff. So the Atlanta office was by virtual Dallas was in person and I had somebody working out of North Carolina. So on the phone and literally I would say, you know, this is what I want to have happen this week. Boom, 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 boom. And, and then I would and what kind of things are we talking about at this point? Well, like- I, I would say, okay, you know what? I saw that you had a meeting, the financial planning meeting with Bill Smith last week. Where's the money? What's the decision? You know, so you need to follow up with him. You know, wh- when's the money coming in? I was always, you know, my thing is, my, is when's the money coming in? <laughs> Did it come in? I was there to help drive revenue. And so the other book that I, I'm sure that you've heard of this book, right, is Who Will Do What by When? Have you heard of it? Yeah, I know it. I actually haven't read it though. Oh my goodness. Okay. All right. So it I need was, to add this to my book list, <laughs> apparently. Yeah, this, it was, okay. Okay. Because here's what happened. Remember you said you interviewed somebody one time and he had four people leave within a short period of time. I had that almost happen. I had four people who were very upset with somebody on in my firm and all four of them wrote a letter. I called it the mutiny. And it's like, if something, if this doesn't change, we're out. I'm like, what? You know, so here's the, here's what happened. Because I had an office in Atlanta, typically after my Monday morning meeting in Dallas, because I live in Dallas, everybody's got their charging orders. And I'll talk to you a little bit about what those were. But I'd go to DFW airport, I'd get on a plane and I'd go to Atlanta. And I might spend Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and come back Thursday to Atlanta or you know, whatever I was doing. Okay. So I had a office manager and she would sit there and all of these instructions, I'd say, okay, Carrie, I want you to call and follow up on that money from Bill Smith. Wes, I want you to do this. And and the mistake I made, Michael, was I didn't say, okay, Carrie, I want you to do this by X amount of time. So I had this office manager and my staff used to, they used to picture her like she's like a bird sitting up in a perch. And as soon as I walked out the door, she'd go, Carrie, have you done this? Wes, have you done that? Kyle, have you done that? And she'd just, she'd, you know, she'd pick at him. And Carrie'd be like, I was just getting ready to call him. And she's like pinging me. So the mutiny was actually resolved when we, I made all of them. I don't know, the the book happened to show up in my office. You know how that, when the, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. So I, I got a copy of that book for everybody. And as a team, we highlighted, you know, we studied it. So from that day forward, now my, my directions were, Carrie, I want, you to e- I want you to call or email Bill, Bill Smith by Wednesday at 4 p.m. And so my office manager had no right to ping anybody until they knew that time was up. And then this book also goes into, or I might need a, I was going to do a plan presentation or one of my, I'd say, okay, you know, Joey, I need you to have that plan presentation done by Thursday at two o'clock. And so what happened in that book is by Wednesday at two o'clock, if he, if it looks like he's not going to be able to get it done, he has to go back to you and they call it renegotiate. Okay. So it started, it, it transformed how we did business because now, you know, there was a timetable on everything and it wasn't this sort of oblivious, amorphous timing, you know? So it really did help my business a lot. So those are the kind of things when I say I wasn't involved, the only thing I wasn't doing is think about it. I wasn't meeting quarterly with all the clients. Okay. I mean, think about 
the idea of doing that right now, I think I would just kill myself because I mean, you go through the same portfolio, the same, you know, maybe you have one or two recommendations. And I used to tease and say, you know, there's only 18 questions they can possibly ask you. I mean, it's just not rocket science. And so people say, but, but, but I love meeting with my clients. And first answer I always have is all of them. And then the second thing is I would meet with the clients because what I would do is usually a lot of my business was based on referrals. And so I would schedule clients, you know, to come in at four o'clock, meet with my advisor. And then I may, might take two or three couples out to dinner. So I did a lot of socializing with my clients, but I just wasn't in those boring meetings, you know, for hours at a time. Interesting. So, so how do you frame this with clients or with new clients? And maybe some of this is just the, I don't know, the, the natural bias, the natural style that most of us have, you know, you, you go out and do business development, you go to try to find potential clients to work with you. And, and much of the framing is just literally like, you try to convince potential clients to work with you. It you know it tends to be very us centric. I think for a lot of firms, there's a a pretty strong philosophy or belief set that you know if you want a client to agree to work with an advisor and form a relationship and bond with them, that advisor has to be involved in the business development process to to build the trust to get them there in the first place. And so you're you're in this realm where a huge portion of your time is focused on the business development and not interested in do any of doing any of the client meetings on an ongoing basis. So how does that get explained to the prospective client? How did that handoff work? Okay. All right. It was very easy. So yes, you know, I'd be out uh, breakfast, lunch, cocktails, dinner. I was the primary hunter and people wanted to meet with me. And so I, I did the initial prospect meeting. And so basically what I would do, I had a very strict formula on how I, I, I never talked about investments. I talked about, I have these things called disturbing tracks. I have 22 little avenues I can go down to get them very uncomfortable with some potential risk items that might be going on in their world that their other advisors have not pointed out. So that's how I win the business. At the end of my time, our time together, I might say, and would you be interested in hearing about our investment philosophy? But that was not, I didn't, I, I, I basically did an end run to get all of the clients and the prospects. And I had about a 95% close ratio on the first appointment. So yes, they were meeting with me, but I would get them very, let's call it disturbed about some unfinished business that they might have. And and then I would say, well, you know, they go, well, we need to get this stuff cleaned up, right? And we, you know, yes, we want to hire your firm. Okay, well, let me tell you how we work. First of all, nobody gets me, okay? And I, and I mean, I have very wealthy, very high-powered, you know, lots of celebrity clients. They don't get me either, okay? I've set up this business so that you, you have to agree to work with various members of my team. Here's how we work. You'll be assigned a primary lead advisor who will be assisted by a relationship manager, you're also going to be from time to time where you'll like, we have another guy who will actually come in. Like I didn't present the financial plans. I had a, a, a person dedicated. He created the plan and then he came in and the plan was shown up on the screen. He presented the plan. So even my lead advisor and my relationship managers did not have to know everything that was in the plan. But Joey, my you know planner, he had to know everything that was in the plan. So anyway, it was very, you know, I mean, it's very matter of fact, like if you, 
I've, I've just discovered that your other advisors have missed some significant things. Now you can continue to go down that road if you want to. And, and you know, but, or you, or you can come and, and I'll, I'll help you get that stuff fixed. But it's just like anything else. Like when you go to an attorney's office, I mean, attorneys have paralegals, other, other businesses. When you go to your dentist, I mean, like your dentist doesn't clean your teeth. So, so why in our business can we not have other people that support the process of our business? Well, why do we have to be the ones cleaning the teeth? You know? So, so you just explain, this is how we work. And if you, if you agree, you know, I'm, I'd love to have my firm work with you. If you don't, you know, good luck with all that. And I just never chased people. I, I think the strength, we called it our approach talk. I had it down, I, had, I nailed it. And, and that's what I teach my advisors, you know, exactly the words I said. And the strength of that approach talk, either we were a good fit or we weren't good fit. So. And can you just give us an example? Like what were, what were some of these uh, disturbing tracks, as you put it, of trying to open up, here's my, you might want to be working with us and not another advisor? Like I said, I had I I outlined twenty two in my course. So I'll give you one. First of all, I learned these from another mentor of mine, and I'll just give you an example. I never want to see a client's estate planning documents in advance. So, because I've seen a lot of my competitors as part of their prospecting, they'll say, "Would you like to, like us to review your estate planning documents?" Okay. My methodology, I don't want to have seen their estate planning documents in advance because if I had seen them, I would already know what was in them, right? So when they come in, you know, we go down a path and we talk about, you know, tell me about you and your, you know, uh, your, your kids, what's your situation, whatever. And then I'll say, well, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? And they're like, sure. And I said, okay, so can we talk a little bit about your estate planning documents? Do you, do you have them? And typically they would have them. And I'd say, I know you probably don't remember, maybe I've been a, a long time or a while, but um, can I just ask you a few provisions? Because we do have, you know, a, a pretty good level of expertise in estate planning. I'm like, sure. I go, okay. So for instance, Joe, if you were to die tomorrow, does the vast majority of your money, have you left it to your wife, Sue? Of course, they always say yes. And Sue, if you were to die tomorrow, do you leave the vast majority of your money to your husband, Joe? And she's just like, yeah. And then can I assume that... Um, when the second of you dies, you want the money to go out in some form or fashion to your children. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Sue, um, I'm just curious about if there, if you put a provision, if your attorney put a provision in your document, Sue, what if you die first? Did, you said that you wanted, you know, Joe to have access to your half of the money. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I want, you know, it's our money together. I said, but what if Joe gets remarried? Okay. What happens to your half of the money if Joe gets remarried? If he dies, do you know? There, do you have a provision to make sure that if Joe then dies, that at least your kids get your half of the money? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know. I said, well, typically, in order to do that, there would be a provision in your documents that would require Joe to sign a valid prenuptial agreement with his next spouse. And if he didn't, unfortunately, he'd lose access to your half of the money. Do you do you have that in your documents? Well, no, I don't think we have that. And, and anyway, so I can just, I, I go down these paths and I don't want to bore your audience with, you know, the detail on that, but I go, I, I, I have 22 of these little places where she's like, well, and I, I basically said, well, you don't have that? Well, no, nobody ever talked about that. I, you know, I said, well, you know, we can get that. Don't worry about that. If you, if you hire us, we can get that fixed. The next one is, 
how does the money go to your children? Is it outright or is it graduated? Everybody always thinks, oh, graduated. Yeah, they get some when they're 30, some when they're 35. I'm like, really? You know, I said, well, you know, I tell them I don't like either one of those. I like, you know, and so I, I tell them, I basically disturb them on lots and lots and lots and lots of things. And it's like, it only takes... I always say, be prepared with two or three, because the first one, they're like, well, maybe that was just a little oversight on my attorney's way. Second one is like, how come they didn't tell me this? I'll give you an example. You'll love this one. This was like taking candy from babies, I'm telling you. So I had this very senior level executive come in, (laughs) and he happened to bring his brokerage statement. And in the course of our conversation, like, I've never met them before, but he said, this was the second marriage. He had two kids by a previous marriage. She had two kids by a previous marriage. And the statement they showed me, they had $9 million in one single publicly traded stock in an account that said joint tenancy with right of survivorship. And all I said was, I said, which one of you has decided to disinherit your kids? They're like, what? I go, well, I'm looking at your statement. You have, your account is set up, you know, your brokerage in, in New York was a brokerage house in New York joint tenancy with right of survivorship. What that means, Dennis, is that if you die, Cheryl has access. It's, you know, she gets all the money. Cheryl, if you die, Dennis has all the money. So, you know, which one of you has decided to disinherit your kids? Like, well, neither one of us. I mean, I said, so I said, you know what? I don't even know if you're going to hire me or not. I don't really care, but at least let's get on the phone and with your broker up in New York and let's get the titling of that account, at least change to tenants in common or some other, you know, I said, this is a disaster for at least one, somebody's kids. I mean, they hired me, that, that was it. They hired me just like that. So they're like, why didn't our broker talk to us about that? I don't know, but we can get it taken care of. And so the whole nature of the disturbing tracks, just like as the name rather literally implies, you know, just some way that that people become unsettled around the way they're financial affairs or their current advisor or their current people are are handling their situation because that's what opens the question. That's what opens the doubt. That's what opens the mind to say, maybe maybe we should be working together. Well, yeah. The thing about it is, is it's, it's just exposing vulnerabilities. And these are real live vulnerabilities that if it were me, I'd want somebody to point out, you know, I mean, think about, it. I've got, a, I have clients, they always come in and they've got five rental properties in their personal names. I mean, who, who, who hasn't pointed out the flaw in that, you know? So I, even if they don't hire me, I would be doing such a disservice not to point out that, which is clearly so obvious, you know? Now, you also said the part of this prospecting meeting essentially is to to try to figure out if they're a good fit or not. So what what defines someone as being a good fit for you? We had to come to terms like our our minimum investable assets was a million dollars. And so that would be a, a basic criteria. But also, you know, I had people that like I had a person that had they had all their money tied up in their business, but they had so many so many issues that had not been dealt with. And they also, I live in Dallas, they lived in California. And so I made one trip out there when I heard, it was a very large situation. And I went out there and it was just, it was a disaster. Like everything, it was two young guys and they had started this business and they they hadn't done anything from an asset protection standpoint. And so they were also jerks. And so um, in that case, my typical fee 
was going to be for that situation would have been about $25,000. So I said my, I told, quoted them a fee of $100,000 and they said, yes, I regretted even later that it wasn't worth the $100,000 because they were just such train wrecks and they were young enough and doing cocaine enough that they didn't think that they had any issues. And so it was like, it was a disaster. So yeah, having the right fit was super important, but you know, for probably the better last 20 years of my career, the vast majority of my clients came as direct referrals from an existing client. And usually, you know, nice people, birds of a feather flock together. They usually have the same socioeconomic, you know, interests and things like that. When I was going to ask just where, where did you find the prospects? Like, I, I understand the the sales process and the disturbing tracks and queuing up to, okay, well, let me explain to you how we work here. You won't be working with me directly, but we have this team and you'll have a primary advisor and, and, and so on. But how are you finding the prospects and the people to get front of in the first place? You know, you mentioned 280 clients at a particular firm. So you were, were you like deep into a particular niche of serving people at this one firm? Was that a, a, a driver for prospecting and building the business? No, that was just that was a nah, that was a long that came way late in my um, in my career. But okay, so literally, I when I started in Panama City and then I did it again in, in Dallas, Texas. I literally went where I didn't know anybody. I went to the Chamber of Commerce and I asked the very first person I ever met to go out to lunch with me. And this is all in my book, Seven Figure Firm, and this is what I teach in the course too. But literally, I would have lunch with this person and I used the strategy of compliment and ask questions. So think about it. I would take person, she was, all she was was the marketing person at the local chamber of commerce. And I sat down and said, hey, so tell me about you. You know, where do you get your haircut? What do you do? I'm, I'm kind of new in town. Tell me about you. And you give the person a gift of an hour of talking about themselves. Now, right now you just gave me that gift, right? Which is actually quite awkward for me because I'm so used to giving other people the gift of talking about themselves. And so sometimes they'll turn around and say, well, tell me about you. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I own a financial planning business and you know, it's, we serve clients and da, 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 but let's talk about you. I turn it right back on them. So after an hour at the very end, I'll say, you know what? I have enjoyed our time together so much. You know, who, who else in town do you think, who are some of the movers and shakers that you think, you know, I should get to know, you know, I'm, I just love finding out about people. And they're like, oh, you should know Joe, the banker. You should know this person. You, I mean, they just would throw up on you. Like you need to know all these people. Well, would you mind connecting me? Literally, by the time I got back to my office, there was these mutual introduction emails, right? So then I would repeat the process and I took Joe the banker out and I took all these things. So I literally, breakfast, lunch, cocktails, dinner, I was interviewing people about their lives. It's just interesting. You do that enough. And then I also did public seminars. And so I would invite people to my seminar. It was a building thing. Then in Dallas, I joined a couple of women's groups, executive women's roundtable, where you had to own a business and international women's forum. And I mean, there were some high powered women in that group and you had to be very careful in there because you weren't really allowed to solicit business, but they, people find out what you do and they call you and like, Hey, we're in the same group together. Would you mind taking a look at our portfolio or X, Y, Z? So it really was just natural because I love people. And if you're there, if you show up, it, they, People, you think, the thing about it is, is you have to wait till people have to have a, uh, a triggering event, you know, to need your services. Most people don't, you know, and so 
I was, you know, I was there when they had the triggering event because I showed up at these places. So, so was that the, was that kind of the approach and philosophy overall that if I just keep networking and meeting people continuously and always asking who else should I know and be talking to and just forever continue down that road, if you've not talked to enough people and reminded them of what you do at some point, there's some triggering event for their lives and the phone's going to ring. Like, was that the approach? I just want to talk to enough people that eventually my phone will ring when they have their triggering event or was there? No, what I do is I also ask them for, for permission. You know, I said, I give, you know, financial seminars. I bring in interesting guests. You know, would, would you ever want to be invited to one of my, oh yeah, I'd love to be invited. Cause I did always bring in, I brought in a lot of outside uh, economists and political figures and things like that. And so I tried to, I, tried to put on interesting events two or three times a year. And I would have them at the new, you know, George Bush, new presidential library. So I, I put on events at interesting places where people would want to go rather than just me giving, you know, seminars. I, I built my business at the very beginning, 20, 30 years ago, doing just, you know, hammering it out and doing seminars. But I later started just doing events. I also got a lot of press you know, the Dallas Morning News did a story on me. I mean, if you Google me, you can go, you know, 30 or 40 pages. I tried to do, get, and so only for the reason that if every financial advisor, when you Google somebody, they better be able to find you, you know, in Google. And so, you know, I went on Wealth Track with Consuelo Mack. I wrote a book, The Big Retirement Risk, Running Out of Business, Running Out of Money Before You Run Out of Time. So, I mean, I did, I did a lot of stuff to become known and, and I was only known in my own little world. The one thing I wasn't known is in the industry because <laughs> I just had my head down for 30 years, built my company, you know? So what's been interesting now is that, you know, I'm trying to sell, a, you know, my online course and, and I'm, it's like starting all over again. You know, now I have to learn, I have to, I have to meet new people in the industry. So, but I'm having a blast. It's great. So I'm, I was struck as well that as you were talking about, setting up these conversations with clients. We're going to, you're going to work, you're not going to work with me, but let me tell you about how it's going to work with the advisors at a firm. And and you weren't a fan of doing the ongoing meetings because you put it, there's, there's only about 18 questions that clients ask at those quarterly meetings. And then it's just the same things that come up over and over again. So it, it, it strikes me that just you were very focused on literally systematizing this down to these are the 22 disturbing tracks of prospects. These are the 18 questions that clients will typically ask in review meetings so that you can then train your people on how do you answer each of the 18 questions and then they know and that's that. Like, was that, that was the structure to it was just trying to systematize everything that way? Yeah. And and so people often ask me like, how did I get my advisors? How did I train them? Right. So I was lucky. Remember, I came back and I had one advisor, Kaylin. And so I started bringing her in on every meeting. She went on, in on every meeting and she was on every phone call. And so what happened, I, I teach advisors how to have, it only takes three meetings, but it does take three meetings. And so that's what, you know, Paul, this is exactly what, how Paul taught me to do it. So I was never in a room and never on a call ever again by myself. So Kaylin would come in or Kyle or Brad or Wes or Carrie or any number of the advisors that I had over the years. And the first meeting I would come in and they were probably used to, they were used to hearing from Carrie because Carrie emailed them things or she responded or took their phone calls or whatever. But now she comes in. And so 
I'm leading the meeting and Carrie's there, but I keep referring to her. You know what, Carrie, what do you think about that? I'm starting to defer. I'm deferring my credibility to her. I'm assigning, I shouldn't say deferring. I'm assigning my credibility to her, not overtly, very, you know, quietly. And I'd let her give the answers to questions or, and I'd only set her up if I knew she knew the answer, right? I want her, I want her to start looking really smart. And I'd say, hey, Carrie, can you, after the meeting is over, can you get back to them on this, 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 and this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's meeting one. The next quarter goes by. I'm in the meeting, but I actually switch places with Carrie. She runs the meeting. And I'm in there for backup. I'm in there. And if the client looks at me, all I do is I literally fold my hands across my chest and I just nod my head just a tiny bit. So I'm just basically affirming whatever it is that she's saying. And then the third meeting, I'm late. I'm just late. (laughs) Darn it. I guess you'll just have to start with Carrie without me. And I do show up and I'm like, hey, how are things going? Oh, fine, fine. Oh, yeah, we got everything answered. We're, We're good to go. And I never meet with them again. And we never have to announce anything. It's just happens. And again, it doesn't happen with your A clients this year. You start with your, let's call it your C and D clients. And, and you know, some people, I had a, a student ask me yesterday, what do I do with these C and D clients? I go, you can do one of two things. You can get rid of them. But I was in the business of helping people. And my C and D clients, once upon a time, they were my A clients. They trusted me when I was a 29, 28-year-old girl that knew nothing, right? I'm not going to just kick them to the curb. I want them to be served but they're just not going to be served by me. And so, you know, year one, in three meetings, you can be completely done with all your C and D clients. In year two, all of your B clients. In year three, you know, okay, if you want to keep 10 clients that you meet with, keep them. In in all your clients, you can socialize with. Now, mind you, this is, everybody's got their own gig. This is what I did But here's another little tool or trick that I teach. And this served me very well. Okay. I may may have had seven conference rooms filled with our clients. And as I said, that was my goal and that's what happened. But let's say I knew there was a planned presentation and there was $5 million on the line. Okay. Here's another trick that I used. I knew the planned presentation started at two o'clock and I figured it was going to be about two hours. So probably the recommendations would have happened about 3, 3.15, 3.30, right? And by 4 or so, the meeting should start to wrap up. And either they're going to take the recommendations or they're going to balk at the recommendations. So I would time it. So I would knock at the door at about quarter to 4. And I'd knock at the door and go, hey, how's it going? Because remember, I brought these people in, okay? These were my prospects that I turned over to an advisor. I'm like, hey, how's it going? And we had a signal, Okay, and this was super cool and it worked so well. The signal was the advisor took their pen and if they laid the pen down next to their yellow legal pad, to the right of their yellow legal pad, that means everything's going great. There's no, you know, they haven't given me any objections. The $5 million is good, you know, da-da-da-da. But if they put their pen across the top of their yellow legal pad, that told me, you know what, why don't you sit down for a few minutes? I could use some help. So I would wait for that pen signal, see where, where did they put the pen? If it was across the top of the yellow legal pad, I'd sit down, hey, you mind if I sit down? What are you guys talking about? And then the advisor could tee up, well, 
you know, we were talking about putting X amount of dollars in, you know, X, Y, Z thing. And they have some hesitation about that. I'm like, really? Well, talk to me about that. So I could go in and overcome those objections. And it just worked like a charm. And, and the thing about it is, is, you know, I made sure that my compensation models were such that <laughs> that advisor needed to get, you know, they wanted to get that $5 million. Their compensation, you know, depended on it. But I wasn't going to, but my firm's compensation depended on it too. So I'm not going to let an advisor hang out there. I want to make sure I support them. And then after every meeting like that, you know, we'd have an after action. I'm like, okay, tell me what happened. What went on? What did you say? What did they say? And so we would have just a little training on that. So Interesting. So just all built around, look, I can, as the, as the owner and founder and leader of the firm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to help grow the business. I'm here to support bringing in clients. I'm here to support getting them on board, but I don't want to bulldoze into every single meeting and try to be the, the closer that's, that gets everyone on board because that disempowers my advisors. So I'm going to let them drive, but just have, you know, a, a subtle and meaning way to point out like, okay, Aaron, I actually need your help a little bit on this one. This, this, this client's been, or prospective client's been challenging for me or nope, actually being's going great. So, you know, Aaron say hello, and then you can go right on out because I'm, I'm all set here. And you know what, it gave both of us comfort because as you know, Michael, it is, I worked hard to bring that prospect in. Okay. I, you know, and, and I would have been pissed, you know, I bring a $5 million prospect in and you can't close the business. I mean, that means I got to go out and, and get another one. And, you know, prospecting is the hardest job. So for God's sake, once I brought him in, I wanted to make sure, you know, wh- whoever was working at it. And, and I, I wanted that business closed. But, so. but I'm still struck that you're, but that didn't mean you sat in on every single meeting to make sure the client came on board. No. Why? Why? Why, why would I? I? You know, you train good people. I mean, we had... Everything was scripted. We had systems, we had processes, we had, you know, the steps of our process. So, you know, I, I, and and my people didn't learn in a vacuum. They learned from me. And so, you know, once, let's say Kaylin, she had, let's call it 50 or a hundred clients under her belt. You know, she no longer needed me in there. I would bring, I would be, you know, bring Kyle into all of my prospect meetings and, you know, they, they learned under me. So it took, you know, it took three years for them to really get good at it. And then after, and so, you know, they could handle all the day-to-day stuff. It was just closing brand new business. Maybe they hadn't heard this objection before and I wanted to be there to support them. Well, and just, you make an interesting point that they're, they're learning under you. I, I'm presuming then, I mean, were you literally, you're the one that's teaching them because you're bringing them all in on these meetings to let them see it, to, to model what works. Yeah. And then Kaylin, she, you know, eventually she brought brought people into her meetings, right? So when, when I was real comfortable that she was closing every single thing that came in, you know, she was also able to train people. So, you know, even the other thing I did sometimes, like I told you, I spent a month in Africa, I spent a month in India. At some, sometimes we would record the meetings with the client's permission. You know, we would record the meetings. And when I would get back, Let's say I had expected one client to, you know, bring in X, Y, Z, and the advisor hadn't done it. Then I'm going to sit and listen to that recording because I, what I did know is I had such a strong relationship in the community and with my prospects that I could always go back and recover, you know. And so, but I would want to listen from a training standpoint and say, oh my gosh, okay, this is where I heard, I see the meeting went off the rails, 
And it was an opportunity for me to train, you know, to retrain a situation that hadn't gotten the results that we wanted. Well, and I'm struck by this point you've made of doing after action meetings, after meeting with clients. Was this like a when things didn't go well or always happened? Like, and and so what did you do? Like, what was the what was the structure around this? Okay, and so okay, let's say it's year one, and I'm training Kaylin, and you know, she, and this isn't Kaylin, I should use any other name, but I'll use her name. She, she doesn't know what, she doesn't know when a client says something, she doesn't know that that's an objection. Or think about it, you have a staff person, they haven't had a lot of sales training, right? And so when the meeting's over, the client's gone, we've shaken their hands, okay, okay, what just happened in there? And I wanted to see if she picked up on what happened there. And, I'd, and if she did, you know, eventually they all did. But I'm like, okay, remember when he said this? What did I say? How did I respond? I said that. Now, do you see, do you see how that changed his outcome or it changed his demeanor? It changed whatever. For instance, I'll give you an example. Since I'm a woman and I belong to women's groups, very often it would be a woman who would drag her husband in to meet with me. He didn't want to be there. He's got his stockbroker and he plays golf with them every Wednesday. So he comes in and he's sitting there with his arms crossed. And I, I know, I'm, I mean, and, and it was just reading the body language. I didn't know he had a, a stockbroker that he, that he played golf with every Wednesday, but I could read the body language. And so, you know what I said? Beginning of the meeting, you know, I'm so glad you guys are here. I just want to make sure you realize that this is that in order to do business with my firm, it is not necessary that we manage all of your money. And you should have seen the, the body language. Oh, okay. Well, I can sit here and listen to her because I, I, won't, I won't have to have an uncomfortable conversation with Joe, my buddy. It was amazing how you could watch that body language change. So just little nuanced things to diffuse the high tensions that sometimes come in a situation. I equally had situation. I had a call one time. <laughs> Client called me up. I was going to fly to Nashville to meet with a very wealthy prospect. And my client called me up, and my client had referred this wealthy prospect. And she called me up. She goes, Aaron, you just got to understand something. She goes, This woman is already, she hasn't even met you, and she's insanely jealous and threatened by you. I'm like, What? I mean, I just couldn't believe it. And so I was so happy for the heads up because. I wore the dowdiest business suit. I had a turtleneck. You know, I wasn't going to show one piece of skin in my business suit. And then when I walked in, it was just so funny. She was just bedazzled, you know, bedazzled and decked out. She looked like she was going to Project Runway or something. I mean, it was just hysterical how she made herself up to come meet with me, the financial advisor, who she was threatened by and she'd never met me. So what did I do with her? I never looked at her. I was like, oh my gosh, it's so nice to meet you. And I focused entirely on her. Oh my gosh, that outfit is so amazing. Look at your jewelry. I just complimented her. And I, and I basically, I talked about my husband, my son. I needed, to, I needed to diffuse this, you know, this fear or whatever she had going on. And only when she felt comfortable with me, could I then even look at her husband or bring him into the conversation. And so, I mean, I was just, I think I would have picked up on the cues 
I mean, no, I know I would have picked up on the cues, but it was really nice for my client to call and say, she's just amazingly threatened already. And I'm like, wow. So, so I have a specific seating system for all clients. I always seat the woman at the head of the table, always. And I seat the woman, the, the male, I seat him on the, on the side of the table when he's looking at me, there's nothing behind me to distract him. And, it, and it's so interesting. I, you know, a, a when I have my staff, my staff will go greet, you know, they, they greet the prospect. And I teach them, how do you get that woman to sit at the head of the table? Because she typically won't go there. So we have a whole seating psychology, like how do, how do you make that happen? Because what the nice thing is, once you get them to sit where you want them to sit, they'll typically, it's like when you go to church, people tend to to go in the same pew all the time. So they'll go back. Yeah, once like once you get them to sit in the play in a place once, uh, we fall into our habits and they always sit in the exact same chair every yeah, meeting. Yeah. But there's so much psychology, you know, that goes into it, as you know. Interesting. And and so and and why again was the what was the point of the the seating system and the structure to do it that way? Well, from a psychological standpoint, okay, I'll give you a real life story. And this is how it, you know, everything that I've built has been based on a story usually. So early in the business, Bob and I had just moved to Dallas. It was 1991. We bought a house and we were going to build a pool. And he called me up and he said, "Hun, the pool guy wants to meet with both of us to discuss the pool pumps. And I'm like, "Hun, I don't care anything about the pool pumps. You can handle that just fine. Da, da, da. And of course he calls me back. He goes, the guy insists you have to be here to discuss the pool pumps. So now I'm pissed. I don't want to be there. The, the, the meeting's at four o'clock. I'm new to the business now. It's markets just closed. I got to pack up all my stuff. I get home. The guy shows up right on time. And we, I live in Texas. And he's like, oh, Ms. Bosford, it's so nice to know you. And I'm like, okay, yeah, whatever. So we get in there and we sit at our kitchen table. And for the next two hours, he completely ignores me. And I'm like, I'm just seething. I'm, fe- I mean, I'm infuriated, but I thought to myself, what am I supposed to learn here? What am I? And so really, I just, I, I sat there. I sat there quietly. And we stood up. And I went to, you know, he went to walk out the front door. He's oblivious to what he's just done. And he's like, oh, Mrs. Bosford, thank you so much. I, I'm so looking forward to building your pool. And we're going to put some good pumps in there. And it'll be great. And I shook his hand. And as soon as he walked out the door, I took my right hand my right hand and I swiped it across my neck and I said <laughs> and I and my husband was like what do you mean by Aunt? I go Aunt. I said we are not doing business with that man and he's like, "What do you mean? He just spent two hours with us." My <laughs> husband was oblivious. No, he to spent the fact two hours with you, <laughs> and I spectated. Yeah, and I'm like. He insisted I be here. And think about in our industry, oh, we always want the wife there. We always want both people. I said, he insisted I be there and he had the gall to just completely ignore me. And I just said, and so I actually have a talk that I've given at a lot of industry conferences and it's called Women Have Absolute Veto Power. We have have an amazing tool that we can use, okay? And we, all women, you know, so... I teach my staff, I'm like, you know what? She may not be the powerhouse. She may not be the, she may be the stay-at-home mom. But let me tell you something. If you ignore her, you diminish her. Because a lot of times, just like me, I didn't want to be at that pool meeting. A lot of times she doesn't want to be in those financial meetings either. But oh no, the broker says, you know, we, I need both couple, both people there. 
you better pay attention to her because if you don't, by the time she gets out to that car and that door is closed, you're going to be history. And so I'm the super only, at The only thing that. worse than not including a spouse is forcing them to be included and then not actually including them in the meeting after you made them be there. Yeah. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of advisors who are completely oblivious to that whole thing. They just, they don't get it. So my thing is, if I put her in a position of honor, and I really, and I, I, I put her in a place where she almost can't be ignored, then I, I'm lessening because I, I can fall in the same trap. He starts talking about this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, I'm tracking with him. I have to purposely make a point, you know, to bring her into the conversation, ask her opinion, you know, et cetera. So. When you make an interesting point, like seating her there, you, you know, the head of the table is classically the the position of honor. Like it's, it's hard to ignore someone who's seated at the, at the head of the table in a small meeting. Like they're right there. But it's, but it's so interesting too, you know, part of the safety psychology is let's say you have a round table. What's interesting is I teach that it's a round table. If it's a male advisor, on the round table, the male advisor sits next to the male in the relationship, and then he sits next to his wife. You never put the wife next to the male advisor. And vice versa, if it's a female advisor, I sit next to the woman. I do not sit next to her husband in a round table. I'm always going to put her between me and her husband. It's just like there's so many unspoken rules that are out there, and a lot of people don't think through those. And so, what, like, why is that for the, I guess, the separations in both directions? Okay, I'm a woman. I'm a high-powered woman. She knows it. She can be threatened. She's, after all, she's just a stay-at-home mom. She's just a stay-at-home. I, I do not want to do any, in any way, shape, or form, I don't want her to feel threatened by me. And so I have, I'm, I'm going to put her, I'm not going to sit next to her husband. You know, because think about it. She, 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 women inherently have a fear. I'm going to take their money, their husband, or both of them. Okay, it just is what it is. And I'm being a woman, I know exactly how that feels. And so, you know, with a guy, the guys, you guys have it much easier. Okay, but still, you want to make sure the respect. You, a guy never wants to be seen as hitting on some other man's wife, right? So it, it's just. Just really nuanced, but I'll tell you, if you mess it up, you can lose it. A lot of people mess this up so much, and the prospect walks out the door, and they have no idea what they did wrong. You know, why did why didn't I get the business? Because you were creepy, and you you sat too close to her. She felt uncomfortable. You know, who knows? And so that and so that's the point of the the male advisor sits sits next to the male and has the the wife on the other side because again, you're trying to create that safe distance from a cross-gender dynamic. That's correct. So as you as you grew the firm, how were you finding and, and hiring the people that that grew with you to do this? Because it sounds like you had a, you had a model that was built very much around like, I'll need to hire advisors that are going to go be business developers and bring in the clients. Aaron, Aaron brings in the clients. I'm going to teach you how to service them our way. You know, it's a little bit of a different kind of hiring process than than a lot of other firms. So like who were you looking for? How did you find advisors and 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 the rest of the team that was in the firm? For advisors, I got the vast majority of them directly out of college. And I preferred that I could get them Texas right near where I'm in Atlanta, they've got degree programs in financial planning. 
And so I like to hire them. They're 21, 22 years old. So I'd bring them on initially because those degree programs in financial planning, as you know, I would bring them in and they could do the technical work of the business. They could actually create the financial plans. And so the way I groomed them is they create the financial plans. And as I said, then they would present the plans in the meeting because they knew where the numbers came from, right? There were so many reasons to do that too, because let's say there was a, a problem in the plan. And by the way, we always had a, we called it a trial close. So when we would present the financial plans, we'd say, you know what? We're going to make the assumption that we got 80, 85% of these, you know, this right. And I always caveated because presenting the financial plan, remember the client expects he's going to have to make a decision at the end, right? Here's the plan. This is what you should do. So I always found that to be the most high tension meeting because they knew it's like, okay, she's going to want me to take out my checkbook. Here we go. So if there was a mistake in the plan, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, there was a mistake. Let's, you know, and that would, that would give them the excuse not to make a decision. So I would counteract that by at the very beginning, I'd say, you know what? We think we got about 80, 85% of, of the data and the assumptions correctly, but we're going to use this time together to clean anything up that we, you know, and, and then we would go through based on, you know, if we got this right or based on how, how much we got this right, classically, this would be, you know, our product recommendations. So it was basically a trial close, close. but it also, because of that, I had my brand new college students. And of course I made my advisors go through the plan several times with the college student. The college student would put up the, you know, we used to present the plans on a screen and he would walk them through the numbers and he would get used to presenting in front of people. And then he would sit in the whole meeting and be able to hear the advisor, you know, make the recommendations. He'd be able to hear the questions, the objections, how you overcame the objections. And so I loved having my college students. And then I would basically, you know, after about a year, year and a half, maybe even two years, then I would start, you know, having them come in my meetings. I would, you know, depending on how good they were. I mean, sometimes they end up staying as just a planner, right? They weren't people persons, they weren't whatever. But I really liked, I liked training them myself. Plus I could get them at a really cheap rate, right? That means right out of college. But I had such great success. And most of them, you know, are still with the firm today. I also paid them very well. I paid way above market because I didn't want any over, you know, any turnover. Paid above market to avoid turnover, but the flip side, like easier to pay above market when you're hiring them directly out of college because it's still not a huge number out of the gate. You can pay folks a little bit less initially compared to hiring someone with five to 15 years of experience in the industry. And I did have a couple of those, but I, I can't say they worked out any better or worse than my college students. So how long did it take from, you know, when someone's coming to the firm at 21, 22 years old before they were at a point where you were ready to, you know, hand off clients to them, let them be in a, a, a lead position, primarily driving on their own? Okay. So you're going to find this story funny. So I had a guy, I'm going to call him Joe. It's not his name, but he, he's no longer with me. So I don't want to reveal his name, but he had started with me right out of college and then I decided to open this this office in Atlanta, and I I, mean, I had two employees. I you know I asked them, and they literally moved them, their spouses, to open my Atlanta office. And this guy was one of them. And so, one of our clients had twenty two million dollars worth of stock plus a lot of other stuff. Okay, and this guy Joe, I mean, 
I, way back then, I was the lead person in the meeting, but Joe had been, you know, updating the balance sheet and doing all the, you know, the, the prep work for the meetings and all that stuff. So this is probably like 15 years ago. So one day now, you have to remember, I'm a 10 quick start. So I can be very impulsive. Sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't work. But as we were walking into a meeting, I said to Joe, Joe, you're going to run the meeting. And he's like, what? And I'm like, you know this guy's situation better than he does, and you know it better than I do. You're just going to run the meeting. And it's like, are you kidding? And the interesting thing is I knew that, I knew I was going to do that, but I knew if I'd have told him the night before, he wouldn't have slept. He'd had diarrhea, you know? So I just sprayed <laughs> Letting all that anxiety build up when when he finds out he's being thrown the deep end moments before he gets thrown in the deep end, you can't really even mentally obsess about it too much. No, I mean, he, he'd always been with me in the meetings, right? And he'd prepared the meeting. So this time it was just, we were going to switch seats. He was going to run the meeting. And it was just really funny. The client didn't even bat an eye. And it, you know, he'd say, okay, you know, Mr. So I think, you know, we're recommending you do this and this and this and this and this. And the client would occasionally glance over at me. And like I said, I would just, had my arms folded and I would just sort of nod my head. And he's like, okay, well, that sounds good. So again, that he ran that meeting and the next time I was late and then I never met with him again, $22 million client. And this kid was like 25 years old. So he loved it. I mean, and, and it's almost like they come in the next day with their statures like, oh my gosh, look at me. I, you know, it's, they, they change, their behavior changes, their responsibility level changes. Because now I, you know, I just turned over a really big client to him and he didn't want to, you know, he never wanted to, you know, let me down kind of thing. So that's the way it rolled. And so Joe would have been what, like three, three years or something into the process of, of learning with you if he was 25 and you're hiring out of college? Yep. Yep. I think he was maybe 26 because we had, he had been with me like three years and we moved him to Atlanta and he had been working on the phone with this guy. And I had been the one actually in the meetings in Atlanta. And I decided I'm going to get a presence in Atlanta. I got an executive suite and then I built out a whole office. He was probably 26. So what did the business ultimately grow to over almost, almost 30 odd years of building? Well, you know, it could have grown to a lot more than it did, but I moved broker dealers five times, <laughs> which I don't I don't recommend at all. But again, my impetuousness, you know, if I was mad about something or something changed, I and, and some of it was good. So and I and I, I could give you excuses or reasons why I either joined or left each broker dealer. We ended up with almost right at a billion dollars in AUM and the last, you know, we, we were doing in excess of six million in revenue per year sometimes more than that, but that, that was, that was a good year, an average year. And so why did you ultimately decide to sell? I was bored. I guess I could have, and, and you know, I know that's crazy because I was making, you know, taking home millions and millions of dollars, but I, I just decided I'd done this for 30 years. I think for a 10 quick start to do the same thing for 30 years is a really hard thing to ask somebody. And there was not a lot of challenge for me left. I, you know, I closed everything I got in front of. I didn't want to open another office. I, I guess, you know, if I, in hindsight, maybe I should have started buying up other people's practices, but I really didn't want to do that for one reason. I'm probably the most risk averse person that you know. And so I didn't really want to take on, let's say, another advisor's 
300 clients or 200 clients having no idea, you know, what that relationship had been like or what investment advice they've been given or expectations that they had. So yeah, I just never wanted to do that. And so I really, I felt like I've been working since I was 11 years old and let me extract some some value from my company. And I had already started, I'd written the book, Seven Figure Firm. I was doing Spend the Day. I'd started doing my online course. And I thought, you know, let me do something different for the rest of my life. So. Well, I'm just, I'm struck though, that I know a lot of advisors who are risk averse as well. And the way the risk aversion gets expressed is that they don't want to grow a business beyond themselves and have to take the risk of hiring employees, bringing them in. What if they give the wrong advice? What if they mistake? What if they blow up the clients? Uh, what if we get sued? What if they leave? What if they leave and take clients? Like all, all of the challenges in that direction. It just it it strikes me that your your expression of risk aversion led you to bring in more of those people, not bring in fewer of them. Yeah, and I guess because I really was a control freak, and I, I I had such control measures as to, you know, what was what our philosophy was, what products we used. Everybody did things the same way, and again, it took me, you know, twenty eight thirty years to to make sure everybody was 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 singing out of the same you know hymnal. And I got a download of every meeting and every call. And in fact, my team knew that I was going to review things on Sunday night at six o'clock. So you wouldn't believe how many how many downloads were date stamped, you know, Friday afternoon at six or something like that. Because they knew on Friday, Sunday night, if I didn't, if, if I, there was a meeting on the calendar and I wanted to know what happened in that meeting. Okay. If I, if I double clicked and there was no download there, they were going to be getting a call from me on Sunday night. So, and they all knew that. So just get your downloads done and then go have a nice weekend. And so that's how I maintained control. And, and I wanted to know they, you know, Let's say I was in, I could be in India and something had happened just in the subject line alone. They had to say EB, Aaron Boss, EB read. And so then I could, you know, there was an issue, somebody complained or, you know, whatever the issue was, I wanted to be given the opportunity to either deal with it or not deal with it. And so I, all I said was, don't ever surprise me. I don't want any surprises. And so, you know, I mean, I had somebody send a, a million, $1.6 million check to another client, you know, wrong address. They knew each other, that the client that was supposed to get it and the client that did get it. I had somebody send an email, a balance sheet to the wrong person. And these people knew each other. Uh, you know, but I guess, you know, I had such good relationships with the clients that I was like, you know what? I, and I, I was very quick to say, I'm very sorry. And I never made excuses. It's like, we messed that up. We completely messed that up. I am so sorry. You know, how can we make it better? So I, I was super fast on don't ever make excuses. Just apologize and be done with it. Because the nice thing is, nice people are nice people. And they'll, yeah, they, I'm sure they've screwed up a time or two before, you know, as well. So just, just admit, the, admit the mistake apologize and move on. Well, and I'm just struck that sort of thematically to me that just you know, if you're worried about handing off clients and handing off interactions to other advisors in the firm, like the 
you know, one way to do that in a risk averse manner is don't hire anybody else and keep all of it yourself. The other way to handle it in a risk averse manner is just systematize everything you do and teach everyone to do it the way you believe it should be done. And, and then they'll, and then they'll do it your way. And you can check the CRM to make sure they're doing it that way. Well, and the interesting thing about that is, you know, in all my business coaching, they're like, okay, you have to systematize. You have to have systems and process. And think about Michael Gerber, you know, he was all about that. And so, but I couldn't figure out how to do that. And, you know, as a 10 quick start, I said, okay, I want to create a system. I want to create a process. And so I'd get out a Word document and I'd start typing it up. And then, you know, I'm like, ah, 15 minutes later, I'm off doing something else. I just didn't have the patience to do it. So, unfortunately, at the time, I had, I had hired a third person. So I had one, two, three people. The third person who was my right arm, her husband got brain cancer. And so, you know, every time he had a treatment, an appointment, a surgery, a this or that, I had a third of my staff out. And then finally, she was out for five months from January to May while her you know, husband died. I literally hired that guy while he was still alive. His firm, he worked for an automotive firm. They fired him and I brought him in. I paid him $10 an hour just to do filing because he had no other skill set. But I wanted them to be able to be together. You know, I knew the brain cancer thing wasn't going to work out so good. But anyway, I paid her the whole time. So when she was sitting at home next to her husband who was dying, I said, I mean, literally, I'd have to call up and say, how do, how do we send birthday cards? Like, where do we buy the birthday cards? Where do we get postage? How do we do this? Finally, I said, hey, I, I'm paying you. And would you mind if you sat there? He was like in a coma. So what I did was I hired a college student who couldn't find a job. This was, I think, around, around 2000. And um, all I would do is pummel her. Her name was Laura. I would pummel her with questions. How do we send a birthday card? How do we place a trade? How do we, you know, whatever. Everything was, how do we do this? And so one by one, she would type up the process. Then she would send it back to Andy, my little college. And if he could actually do it, if he could, you know, like, how do we know whose birthday is today? How do we know whose birthday is tomorrow? Where do we, you know, if he could, uh, then if he could do it, then I knew I had a system or I had a process. So that's literally over five months we created our first systems manual and it was born out of a, you know, a horrific situation, but we got it done. And then, then again, you know, you have to change broker dealers five times. So every, every time you change, but here's another key thing for anybody listening. What I did after that was every time I hired a new person, okay, their quarterly, I, they, I would, that would give them a quarterly bonus and it was based on them updating the systems manual. So typically when you hire somebody new, I mean, literally I'd say open up a Word document or however you're going to take notes because think about it, an existing employee is going to teach them how to you know, place a trade or how to uh, get an IRA distribution or how to do, make, you know, whatever the, whatever all that's, that back office stuff that happens, which I haven't known about in a long time. So in order for them to get this quarterly bonus, they had to show because we kept a lot of stuff in words. So, you know, you can do the corrections and I had to see that it was constantly updated with every new employee. And that's how I kept it. So what surprised you the most about trying to build an advisory business? I guess, you know, what surprised me is that I've never been a very, I'm, I'm not financially super savvy. I've never been a market guru. I've never, 
you know, I've always outsourced my, you know, asset management stuff. What surprised me is that people trust people who, you know, who care about them, right? So I was really happy because I, I never thought of myself as being very intellectual or smart. I just liked people and I was, I cared about their money. I didn't get a chance to tell one of the stories that I had personally was, but my husband and I, we got married and we, my, my mother had no money. And so I, the bride's parents were supposed to pay for the wedding and she had no money to pay for my wedding. So I went on the wheel of fortune and I won. And so between that and a couple other things, I had you said, went on wheel of fortune to yeah, get wedding money, to get wedding money. Yeah. I was 20 and I lived in Southern California at the time. My friend Marie said, Hey, wheel of fortune is doing tryouts for brides week. I'm going to be a bride. So I went on, I solved the final puzzle. Final puzzle was down in the dumps. Anyway, so Bob and I had $22,000 total saved, paid for my wedding. I put $3,000 and I bought a, a townhouse in Southern California with a good friend of mine, and that worked out great. I had it for 14 years. I gave the other $19,000 to a stockbroker, and he lost all of it for me in about six months. I knew, I knew what heart, you know, I'd worked really hard to have somebody, he never even said he was sorry. He, he had put me in, you know, four investments that were so not right for a young 20 year old young girl. It was ridiculous. And so, he's just like buying penny stocks that literally failed. Well, I mean, actually, it was more. He bought four different limited partnerships. And this was, remember, in the year where all the limited partnerships just went belly up. Oh, yes. Yes. Tax Reform Act of 86 blew them all up. Yep. Blew them all up. So, yeah. So, I guess, you know, I always look at everything and say, what can I learn from this? And the idea of, I never wanted any person to feel about me or my firm the way I felt about that man. Like, you know, so I think that was, I think that served me well to be very keenly aware. I really did treat my client's money as if it was my own money. And a lot of times I invested it just like I invested my own money. So, so that served me well. So what was the low point for you in the journey? You know, I, I don't know if you know my, my personal story about my car accident and all that stuff that happened to me. And so you know, when I was 16, I was on my way to work at McDonald's. I hit a guy on a motorcycle. He was killed and I was charged with involuntary manslaughter. I went through a criminal trial. I was found not guilty, but then the family of the young man sued my mom and, and me for a very large amount of money. And, and as I said, my father had died when I was 10 and he left my mother penniless. So with six kids. So we had just had a, a horrendous, I had a horrendous childhood, if you might say. So there was really nothing once I got through, you know, losing my father, almost going to jail, but, you know, n but not, and founding not guilty and going through all that, there, there wasn't, it, it does start to put things in perspective. <laughs> I would imagine so. I, uh, for all the other, uh, you know, speed bumps that we get trying to be advisors, I'm like, well, no one died today. No one died today. And, and you know what was interesting was that story, I've told that story many, many times. It's been written in the magazines and stuff. I was ashamed of my background. I was, and so when my husband, I, the way my husband noticed me, my picture was on the front page of the local newspaper after this car accident. He's like, oh my God, that girl's in my algebra class. I mean, that's how he noticed me. So when we got married, I was so lucky that, he, I, we, as I said, we moved, he was in the Air Force, Air Force pilot, fighter pilot. We moved 17 times in the first 14 years we were married. And that's, that literally saved my life because Michael, no matter what, no matter that a judge 
gave me, uh, they, they prove without a shadow of a doubt that I did not in fact kill this young man. He was 18. He was, he had borrowed the motorcycle that morning. He was going 47 miles an hour in a 25 mile hour zone. I was going 17. The, the, the truth was he was dead and I was alive, right? I was so messed up over that. You can't, and, and my mother was broke. There was no money for a psychologist. The ir- irony was my father had a PhD in psychology, but my father woke up one day on Valentine's Day, 1970, and died of a massive heart attack in front of all of us kids. You know, he, w- he, he was he, PhD. I mean, he just hadn't gotten around to doing any planning. So here we were left. So the big thing I want to tell your audience is this. I wanted to take that story and bury it so far underneath the rug and, and, and moving with my husband was such a gift. So I come back to the U.S. because we lived in Germany from 85 to 88. I come back and I get a job as a stockbroker. And I want people to see me as the glitz girl. And by this time I buy a nice fancy car and I want to wear fancy this and that. And then one day in 1992, and by the way, I never wanted anybody to know my story. I was ashamed I wanted, that was my history. That was my past. Forget it. Don't, you know. And that was how my family handled things too. We just put it under a rug and we didn't talk about it. Then one day in 1992, this random couple came in the office and my branch manager said, oh, like I was on deck. So, you know, I got to meet with them and he was just getting ready to retire from a major pharmaceutical company and they had a good bit of money, but oh my gosh, they were just so distraught because their son had hit a guy on a motorcycle and he had been killed. And the financial implications, what if they're sued? What if this? And I just started shaking. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not going here. We're not going here. And I'm like, oh my God. And these people were just distraught and they said their son was suicidal. And and so I I, I finally opened up. I said, well, I can kind of relate to it. I told my story and oh my gosh. It was like these people, they literally went lurching, lunging across the desk to come hug me and they were crying and like somebody could finally relate to the fear and all of this stuff, you know? And I'm like, you know what? I can tell you right now, he's going to be okay kind of thing. And when I saw that reaction, I was like, these people just want to work with someone who's human, you know, somebody who can understand maybe their fears. And, and so I, so from that day forward, I've told that story. I've told my whole story because I want them to see me as, you know what? I've lived a little bit of life. I understand fear and, and the idea of in turning your life savings, turning your money over to somebody else ranks way high up there in the fear scale. So, so what I have found most of all is if the more vulnerable, I, I have a, a section in my course, I call it get naked first, you know, and, and I t- teach my advisors how to say, you know what, you might be wondering how I got into this business and why I'm uniquely qualified you know, to help you. And then you tell your story you, to, and like you, t- you tell maybe how you got beat up a little bit and you always want to make sure that you don't want to end up getting stuck in the mud puddle, that how you came out of it, what you learn from that. And people buy that. People buy real people. And so the biggest surprise I've ever had is they didn't even know what I knew about money management, they, but I, they knew I was real. And they knew I'd, I'd, I'd been through a few things and I had picked myself up the floor and I'd scraped myself off. And here I was, I was still standing. I'd lost money. I'd entrusted money. I got how that felt. So it's, it really, it's amazing what being authentic can do 
in bringing in clients. The end. So what advice would you give to new advisors coming into the industry today and trying to get started from scratch? Go to your local chamber of commerce, meet somebody, (laughs) take them out to lunch and ask them a lot of questions about themselves. Get interested in other people. You know, it does take breakfast, lunch, cocktails, dinner. Uh, I I did that for the better part of my career. You've got to be out there. And the other thing I would say is take my course, model what I did. Don't reinvent the wheel. When you get in front of a prospect, say these things and they will say yes, right? Everybody can go out and figure it out on their own, but I'm telling you, <laughs> there's, a, there's a real good way to shortcut that because you know, I, I tried everything and I finally figured out what is it that works. And so I'm offering that to people that want to short circuit the, the, the learning curve. And so again, for folks that are listening, this is episode 168. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 168, we'll have links out as well for, for anyone who wants to take more of a look at Aaron's course. So Aaron, what what comes next for you? You've You've sold the business, working on the course. Yeah, so I'm proud. I'm telling. I'm proud to tell you that I spent a couple years creating this course, and uh, I had my first group of people go through. We called it our founders. January one of 2019. In the entire year, I trained a little over 200 advisors. I have two employees working for me, and after having paid all of the expenses. I was able to send a check for $87,600 to my orphanage in Africa. And so I'm just going to keep working this. The nice thing is I do it out of my house because it's online. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to do anything, right? I mean, I'm, I don't have to go anywhere or do anything. And so this year, my goal is to train a thousand advisors. I'm actually in discussions with five pretty serious broker dealers because my premise is that let me train your advisors. They will listen to me because I've actually done what I've actually done this. And, and it hoping- works better than home office, just kind of parroting whatever home office parrots, even if they're right. It's not the same when it comes to the home office. You know what? And that, with that I don't like to say that, but it, that's, that's the response I've gotten from advisors because I'm credible. I've been in their shoes. And so I'm hoping, because like I said earlier, there's 1.7 million orphans in the country of Zambia alone. These are little girls and little boys who have no mommy and no daddy. And so I'm hoping to have a bigger impact. Um, And and I'll say one other thing for your advisors, something that Paul really talked to me about was, and you made a comment earlier, Michael, about, yeah, maybe there's this guy and, you know, he's got enough to meet his needs and all of that stuff. And what I've learned is that you know, I have, I've, I've talked to a lot of advisors. Oh yeah, they want to 10 times their business. They want to double their business. They want to grow. They want to be Ron Carson. They want to be whatever. And what I have learned is that you have to have a big enough why, okay? And, and if, and your own personal comfort will never be a big enough why to get you to do what it takes to actually be a multi-million dollar producer. It's just not a big enough why. So, I found a big enough why, little kids that don't have mommies and daddies. And that is enough every morning when I get up, I'm on a mission. Because guess what? If I'm not successful at this, those kids won't eat. Okay, so that's a pretty good driver for me. Mm, yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty good driver. And I, you know, I've actually got a succession plan. I've bought life insurance on myself so that if something happens to me before I get this going, you know, 
much bigger that that those kids will still eat. That's how much I care about them. So, Aaron, as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success, and and one of the things that always comes up is just the even the word success means different things to different people. Uh, sometimes it changes for us as we go through our own lives. So you you built and sold this incredibly successful advisory business. You're you're building the course now. How do you define success for yourself? That's a good question. And I'll, I can tell you, I'll, I'll define it two ways. I only have, I'm married. I've been married 40 years to the same man and I'm, I adore and worship him. I, I feel like that's success, having a marriage that has gone through a lot and survived. I have one son who's 36 and he, he was just interviewing for a very high powered job at a defense company. And he was down to the last two candidates. And his boss asked him a question and and said, who in the world do you admire the most? And he said, me. He said, my mom. And he called me up because I wanted to hear how the interview went. And I said, "Um, okay, how did the interview go? What did they ask you? You know, did you get the job or whatever? And so he told me, he goes, well, they asked me the question, you know, who do, who in the world do you, do I admire the most? And I said, really, who did you say? Never expecting Never, he said, Mom, I said, you. I'm like, what? You? Yeah, I'm you, Mom. And, and he said, I told, the, I told them your story, and I told them how much you've overcome. And he said, the lady interviewing me said, she, he goes, she started tearing up and said, you know what? I bet your mom would really like to know this. <laughs> so that's success when you can raise a child, have a big business, and your child admires you. And then the bottom line is one of the exercises that I have my students go through is I have them write their own eulogy. And I give them my eulogy. Here's what I wrote years ago. Because having a eulogy means it's something that you want somebody to stand up. You're dead, but this is how you want to be remembered. And and I really believe that it defines, like you put it out there. These are the things I want somebody to say about me. So guess what? I have to become that person. Because when I wrote my eulogy, I was not that person, but this is who I want to become. And so to me, success is about what do they say about you at your, in, in your eulogy? Because, you know, at the end of the day, we all just, you know, <laughs> you, you put all your toys and they all go back in the box, you know, and, and all you have is, is, what you gave back to people, who you helped along the way. Um, it's, you know, that to me, that's success. If I can feed another kid, if I can help another advisor get out of the muck and the mire, because this is a hard business, then, then every day gets to be a success. Well, amen. I, I love the message, Aaron. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's just been an honor to be here and you've been so inquisitive and I appreciate your, I appreciate you having me very much. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.